Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we're going to talk about a lawsuit. But before we do, I want to give a word of warning. This particular lawsuit is going to be on topics of a sexual nature. The lawsuit in question is a libel lawsuit filed by Chris Avalone, a prominent or maybe not prominent, and that's going to be a big factor in how we evaluate this lawsuit, writer in the video games industry who was accused of certain sexual misconduct in respect of his past behaviors. And as a result, as he has filed, at least as he has attested, he lost jobs and possible compensation in the video game industry as a result. Because of the nature of this conversation, I suspect a number of you will have very strong feelings on one side or the other, whether that's Chris's side, whether that's his accuser's side. I will tell you before we get started that this is an analysis of a libel lawsuit. We're going to be talking about libel law, specifically libel law in California. And at the end of this video, you will not have any finalization of who's right or who's wrong as part of this discussion. It's one of the big problems with accusations and lawsuits of this type. And unfortunately, that's one of the issues with this particular filing. Now, of course, if you get wronged in the media and you think somebody has said something absolutely false about you, there are provisions in the law that are designed to afford you the opportunity to sue someone for hurting your reputation and hurting your economic realities as Chris has chosen to do here. But as you can see in the thumbnail, and as you've heard me say in virtual legality in the past, libel lawsuits, defamation lawsuits, particularly of anyone with any kind of name in an industry, of any kind of prominence, are enormously difficult cases to win in the United States. We're going to talk about why, uh, but I did want to get out front there. We are going to be talking about areas of some sensitivity, and we're not going to have any answers as to whether or not the actual events that are at issue here happened or didn't happen. That's not our job, and that's not what even the law is going to be able to do when evaluating a libel lawsuit. Now, first, we've got a Twitter thread that went up at 4.30 in the morning yesterday, uh, or a couple of days ago. Chris Avalone said, ending silence, last year a woman named Carissa made accusations against me, and so did her friend Kelly. They concerned our first meeting almost nine years ago, and according to Chris, they were untrue. I spent the last year trying to persuade myself these acts were done out of a misguided sense of self-righteousness. I've tried to correct the record, allow voices to be heard. But in keeping silent, I was wrong. The motivation for these attacks seemed simple. Carissa and Kelly were angry about a bad breakup I had with their friend Jackie nearly seven years ago. Jackie was a woman Carissa had encouraged me to hit on at a bar at the same convention a year after Carissa and I first met. Jackie and I saw each other for a year. We were not dating. We were not boyfriend and girlfriend. We stopped seeing each other seven years ago. I had to break it off in no small part to, due to Carissa continually angrily inserting herself into our relationship. I do not know why Carissa waited so long with these accusations. She seemed to be triggered by the posting of an IGN video interview involving me. I did not want to do this video interview. I was told by the PR Evolve liaison that IGN insisted, but it was not the content Carissa seemed angered by. It was my presence shortly after Carissa made her accusations. Now, we're going to get into those a little bit here because they are important. We aren't, as I said at the top of this video, as interested in figuring out what happened. Unfortunately, that's an impossibility for those of us on the outside. However, what you saw in just that thread has some important beats, including but not limited to the reference to IGN effectively requiring him to be a part of the interview. And it's an inference 
uh, that might go very badly for him in terms of prosecuting a case like this. Now we get to a much longer form statement that Chris made. Chris is a writer uh, and he's on Medium. So he, uh, of course, did a very long written document here. If you're interested in his take on this and the specifics, I highly recommend checking out the link here. Uh, However, what I want to talk about is not so much that as much as some of the references that he makes here before we dive into the lawsuit. She accused me of forcibly getting her drunk, of targeting her with drinks, even though I was buying rounds for a crowd of people, of using the company dime to do so, of assaulting her and a whole host of other accusations, too many to list. And so that's going to be the crux of what we are discussing here. This is going to be what the lawsuit that Chris has filed in California is based on, these kinds of accusations, most specifically these accusations themselves. The last thing I wanted to mention as part of this kind of long-form take is a think an important statement that Chris makes that is 100% completely true. When someone feels they have been wrong, their story should not be dismissed. These stories should be investigated as if they are true. He's talking about his accuser now. I also believe all facts should be put forth before judgment is delivered. Now, this comes back to one of those areas of sensitivity on the internet. It's an area where, frankly, folks on Twitter or on social media have yelled at me in the past. I am a lawyer. I am a believer in burdens of proof and investigations and due process and those kinds of things. And when someone says something like believe all women or believe victims or something along those lines, I believe that the language highlighted in red is exactly what that should mean. These stories, these accusations, these claims should be investigated as if they are true. That is the job of the justice system. And if that system is failing, that is something worthy of protest and consideration and hashtags and all those things. What it doesn't mean, what it shouldn't mean, what it can't mean in a functioning legal system is believe for veracity just based on a claim that people of all stripes, of all backgrounds, of all races and genders and orientations and similar can lie. And so it's the importance of the justice system to evaluate those things, investigate them as if they are true. You hear stories about officials in various locales saying, oh, that couldn't possibly be the case, accuser, victim, whoever. You don't want that, but you also don't want the outrage mob and everyone else jumping on those kinds of things. That's kind of neither here nor there with respect to Chris and his complaint, but it is something I wanted to call out because I do think you lose nuance in that conversation when you have hashtag campaigns and things along those lines. Uh, Now, I do think Chris, who describes himself as a game writer who worked on Star Wars Fallout and Dying Light 2, is selling himself a bit short in this medium uh, page. You see here a list of things that he has written, including Knights of the Old Republic uh, 2, Alpha Protocol, Torment, uh, Prey. Uh, He was a consultant on Star Wars, Jedi Fallen Order, etc., etc. And more importantly for our conversation here, Chris is one of the few people, individuals in video games that I think has a name that is recognizable. If you go to look at a Kickstarter, let's just take Torment, uh, Tides of Numera, or Numenera, I think, uh, that In Exile put out a couple of years back. You see here, they're collecting money based on things like, you will also receive the Planescape Torment developer retrospective, a series of dev diaries, blogs by more than a dozen PST developers, including lead designer Chris Avalon. Uh, And you'll see Chris pop up, or you saw him pop up prior to these accusations, in things like Kickstarters, as a way to drive money, that he has one of those names because he was so successful uh, for certain people that like specifically RPGs, and he was tied to writing those RPGs in a manner that made him perhaps a public figure. 
We'll get back to that in just a second. So he filed this lawsuit in the state of California against Carissa and Kelly and a hundred does, John does, people that he can't identify in respect of communications online. Now that's, again, neither here nor there, although you see this kind of reference to hundreds of people sued uh, by uh, Mr. Avalone uh, on things like articles and, and journalistic outlets this week and this weekend. Uh, that's not really so interesting to the legal parameters here, but it is noteworthy because he does reference it in his filing. Now you see this again, repeating the Twitter thread and what he put up in Medium. Barrows and Bristol made libelous statements about Avalon. Each unnamed defendant was the agent of the other. He's trying to tie whatever liability one of them might have to the other as a kind of conspiracy, uh, which is a little bit novel. I don't know if that will wind up working for him, but you'll see certain novelties and uh, rhetorical bases stolen as part of this filing uh, in any event. But that's what he's trying to do with a paragraph like this, trying to say that they were working together to accomplish this particular defamation. And then we start to talk about what libel means, right? We've got this lawsuit. He's suing for libel per se, liable on its face. I don't have to bring in any exigent circumstances, any other understanding of what code phrases might mean. If you take a look at what I'm about to show you, court, you will understand it is libelous just by reading it. So what is libel in the state of California? Well, California defines it as follows. Libel is a false an unprivileged publication by writing, printing, picture, effigy, or other fixed representation to the eye, which exposes any person to hatred, contempt, ridicule, or obloquy. And obloquy essentially meaning those things. It's a certain amount of uh, effective vitriol in public. A libel which is defamatory of the plaintiff without the necessity of explanatory matter, such as an inducement, innuendo, or other extrinsic fact, is said to be a libel on its face or libel per se. Defamatory language not libelous on its face is not actionable unless the plaintiff alleges and proves that he has suffered special damage as a proximate result thereof. Special damage being defined below. And we're going to look at those definitions in just a second. But you look at this and you see that California actually has a fairly broad definition of what libel is. It's a false and unprivileged publication by writing that tends to expose a person to hatred, contempt, ridicule, or obloquy. And so you get to, okay, it has to be false, and it also has to be unprivileged. So what does privileged mean? Privileged is basically discharge of an official duty, legislative proceeding, judicial proceeding, something to do with the government, except for a number of these exceptions, which don't apply here. So you've basically got a false publication that exposes someone to contempt, that exposes someone to derision. Uh, and if that is in fact the case, then on its face, you have a potential libel cause of action in California. But that's not the end of the story when we talk about defamation, as you might know if you've been in virtual legality with us for a while, because in the United States, we've got this thing called the First Amendment, which says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, which means that as a federal and state governments acting under the supremacy of the federal government in the United States, there is a natural tension between, hey, you person are lying about me in public and I have the freedom to say what I want about people. So in all of case law with respect to defamation, there is this tension as between whether or not you can say something about someone in the United States and in its various states and what the standard should be when we evaluate whether or not you have said a falsehood 
about someone. And that comes up in a number of big time cases, which we've discussed before here. But I'm bringing up a case that was specifically decided in California because this was a California lawsuit brought by Mr. Avalon. And it says, in the landmark decisions, New York Times Co. versus Sullivan and Gertz versus Robert Welch, the United States Supreme Court held that public figures must prove by clear and convincing evidence that an allegedly defamatory statement was made with knowledge of its falsity or in reckless disregard of its truth or falsity. The rationale for imposing this burden on a public figure in an action for defamation lies in large measure in the consideration that public figures are less deserving of protection than private persons because public figures, like public officials, government folks, have voluntarily exposed themselves to increased risk of injury from defamatory falsehood concerning them. The question whether a plaintiff was a public figure is a question to be determined by the court rather than the jury. In the Gertz decision, the court observed that the characterization of a plaintiff as a public figure may rest on either of two alternative bases. In some instances, an individual may achieve such pervasive fame or notoriety that he becomes a public figure for all purposes and in all contexts. More commonly, an individual voluntarily injects himself or is drawn into a particular public controversy. Now, based on what we have seen so far from Mr. Avalone, we can't say he injected himself into a controversy over these particular topics, but he may nonetheless be a public figure. I turn now to the Digital Media Project here, who, not a law firm as far as I know, still provides good context for what's happening in various states with respect to things like defamation and other journalistic laws. In California, to classify a person as a public figure, the person must have achieved such pervasive fame or notoriety that he becomes a public figure for all purposes and in all contexts. That's what we just saw from the California decision we read. For example, the following persons have been considered public figures in California and includes an author and television personality. Now, why did I highlight that particular item? Well, it's because we're talking about a writer, an author, who it appears is claiming that the items against him, the accusations against him, developed off of his appearance, not on television, but on a video game show on one of the most popular gaming journalism outlets on the internet, IGN. So based on only that, you start to get a feeling for, hmm, Maybe he's a public figure for at least the specific purpose of talking about the video game industry. We look further at DM here and we see the category of limited purpose public figure includes individuals who have distinguished themselves in a particular field, making them public figures regarding only those specific activities. These limited purpose public figures are not the Kobe Bryants who are regarded as all purpose public figures, but rather the journeyman basketball players of the league who still have that higher standard in respect of things related to basketball. And unfortunately, you don't see a citation here. You don't see all this case law here because a lot of defamation, libel and slander law, especially in the United States, is so facts and circumstances dependent that you don't get a lot of these ironclad rules outside of the things like New York and Sullivan and Gertz and Robert Welch. So you get instead these kind of generalized statements of hmm, a nationally known college football coach accusing of fixing a football game was known as a limited purpose public figure. That when we look at this, we're going to evaluate this based on what is actually happening here. Is this person somebody that's famous enough that they don't need the protection of the libel laws, which are otherwise kind of spinning in the face of the First Amendment because 
there's public interest in what they're doing. There's public interest in their persona and or they have the means to avail themselves of a defense. They could get on IGN. They could do something else. They could make a statement on Medium and get it covered in places such as the very, very popular virtual legality. And if he is in fact that, then federal jurisprudence under the First Amendment says, California, your libel laws are nice, but we're actually going to require a higher standard of you in order to win a libel case against a public figure or against statements made against you as a public figure. And so we get into this very difficult thing, right? So if we look at all of this together, we can see exactly what the elements of libel law in California are. And I like to look at jury instructions because I think those are designed to be broken down and very useful in a format like this one on YouTube. So we see defamation per se in California, jury instructions, private figure, matter of private concern. This is where Chris Avalon would like to wind up. It says, Chris claims that Carissa harmed him by making one or more of the following statements, which we will look at. To establish this claim, Chris must prove all of the following. That Carissa made her statement to a person other than Chris. And we know that. It went out on Twitter. It went out on the, all these various other places. That the people who heard this statement reasonably understood that the statements were about Chris. That the people reasonably understood that the statements to mean something that is defamatory. And that Carissa failed to use reasonable care to determine the truth or falsity of the statements. Reasonable care here being a sense of negligence. If you didn't use reasonable care to determine truth, that means you were negligent in the information that you put out there. That's a fairly low bar to hit as compared to things like malice, which we will see in the next jury instruction that we're going to look at. If Chris has proved all the above, negligence, falsity, this kind of stuff, then he is entitled to recover actual damages uh, to the extent that it was a wrongful or substantial factor in causing any of the following. Harm to his business, expenses he had to pay, harm to his reputation, or shame, mortification, or hurt feelings. And remember that phrase because a number of people have brought it up as not worthy of a lawsuit document, and that's just not accurate in California using these terms. Even if Chris has not proved any actual damages for harm to reputation or shame, mortification, or hurt feelings, the law assumes that he has suffered this harm. Without presenting evidence of damage, he's entitled to receive compensation for this assumed harm. In whatever sum you believe is reasonable, you must award at least a nominal sum, such as a dollar. Chris may also recover damages to punish Carissa if he proves by clear and convincing evidence that Carissa acted with malice, oppression, or fraud deliberately to harm him, knowing of its falsity, that kind of thing. We'll get back to that. Now, where Chris doesn't want to find himself and why this is such a big deal is defamation per se instructions, essential factual elements for a public officer figure or limited public figure. Now, what does he have to prove here? Well, Chris claims that Carissa harmed him by making one of the statements. To establish this claim, he must prove all of the following, that Carissa made one of the statements to somebody other than Chris, that Chris reasonably, that they, those people that those statements were made to reasonably understood that the statements were about Chris and that the statements were false. In addition, Chris must prove by clear and convincing evidence that Carissa knew the statements were false or had serious doubts about the truths of the statements. You don't get to liability at all if you're a public figure or limited public figure unless you can show that the defendant, Carissa, knew the statements were false or had serious doubts right? This is the actual malice kind of standard. If we go and we look at this described a little bit more fulsomely later on in the libel statute itself, 
They say actual malice means the state of mind arising from hatred or ill will towards the plaintiff, provided, however, that a state of mind occasioned by a good faith belief on the part of the defendant in the truth of the libelous publication or broadcast at the time it is published or broadcast shall not constitute actual malice. This goes along with everything that we have been talking about, right? You actually have to have a state of mind, knowing falsity. That's why they put that jury instruction there is that actual malice is a little bit tricky for juries. And there's a note there in that document you can check out. But if you find yourself in this bucket, if you find yourself under federal law in respect to the First Amendment, then you are going to have a much higher burden to clear. And so it's one of the things that you generally want to plead about in your lawsuit. And it's one of the things we will see that doesn't happen here. So we've got them acting as agents. We then see in the very first paragraph of General Allegations, Avalone is an established computer game writer having written games for blue chip gaming franchises, including Star Wars, Fallout, Dungeons and Dragons, and Dying Light. Avalone's more than 20 year career writing computer games has been based in California, primarily at the Southern California Game Developers Interplay Entertainment Corporation and Obsidian Entertainment. The computer gaming industry is worldwide, but many top studios are based in California alongside the rest of the entertainment industry. As a result of Avalone's status in his industry, he is often invited to conventions promoting computer games. So backing up a step, that sounds very much like Plaintiff Chris here comes out and says, I'm a public figure or at bare minimum, I'm a limited public figure. Now, as we just talked about, there isn't a lot of fact-specific jurisprudence on video game writer invited to IGN video or conventions that gets you specifically to public figure. And the courts are going to potentially have some leeway on this. But I look at this just from the outside and say, that sounds to me like a public figure. And if you are bringing this lawsuit, one of the very first things you probably want to try to do is establish that you are not a public figure for purposes of you know, sexual claims brought against you on Twitter or on other social media. And that doesn't happen in this lawsuit. And that might present a significant stumbling block. Further, you see that Barrows and Bristol are described here as computer game fans and cosplayers. They're in his industry, even if they don't make video games. And then you see the description of what we saw in his Medium post and on Twitter. Later that night in 2012, Avalon and two fellow computer game writers escorted Barrows to her hotel room where her roommate was settled in for the night. When the four arrived, Avalon and Barrows kissed and heavy petted outside her hotel room door. Moments later, when Barrows told Avalon that this is not a good idea, the sexual nature of their encounter stopped. At Dragon Con 2013, the year after they first met, Barrows attempted to matchmake Avalon with her close friend. The match was successful and Avalon was casually involved with Barrows' friend, for about one year. And that's what we get, really, is the only paragraphs at the start of this thing. And then we get the first cause of action, which is libel per se against Barrows and other people talking about it online that he can't identify. On or about June 17th, 2020, the San Francisco-based video game and entertainment website IGN.com published an interview with Avalon and another female game writer about their work on role-playing computer games. On or about June 18th, 2020, the day after, Barrows replied to a tweet posted by IGN promoting the interview, posting on Twitter, zero interest in anything from a man who spent so much time preying on young women, no age check, getting them drunk, and taking them to hotel rooms, showing up to panels late and wasted, if at all, and treating fans, fellow industry so badly, he was blacklisted from at least one big convention. And this is highlighted as an example of libel per se, specifically the bold part here. A man who spent so much time preying on young women, getting them drunk, 
and taking them to hotel rooms. He describes these as libelous on their face and exposing him to hatred, contempt, ridicule, and obliquy, right? We, we talked about this. This is exactly what is required under California law. Barrow's statements are entirely false. Barrow's failed to use reasonable care to determine the truth or falsity of her statements, right? We saw that. We saw that that's the standard when we're talking about private figures. And we saw that that's not the standard when we're not talking about private figures. So one of the first things that you want to establish is that you're a private figure, which is not at all obvious when you open your complaint by talking about the fact that IGN had you on their video service. And then in your Medium post that you put up at the same time as this filing, you said you didn't even want to be there. IGN insisted, presumably because you're so darn famous that the public is specifically interested in you. So there's a lot here where you look at it as a lawyer. And you say, hmm, this isn't even the strongest case I think you could present if you wanted to present this case. Uh, and I don't know whether that's the law firm. I don't know that, whether that's Chris or not. And certainly, if these kind of statements are made out in public and they're 100% false, let's say Chris was even never even at this convention. We know that isn't the case, but let's just pretend that somebody wasn't even in the country when a statement like this was made. You can see how these kinds of statements hurt. And yet, you still have to go through the steps of establishing that you've met the legal necessity that is required in California and more specifically required under federal law if you are in fact a public figure for this purpose. The other problem that you have just on its face, the reason libel cases are also so difficult is you might notice that one of the requirements, even if you are a private figure, is that the statements made had to have been false, right? That the statements made had to have hurt you falsely. And that if you don't prove that you're in trouble, which means that you have to show that something can be false. Or as this particular instruction says in California, fact versus opinion. For Chris to recover, Carissa's statements must have been a statement of fact, not opinion. A statement of fact is one that can be proved to be true or false. In some circumstances, Chris may recover if a statement phrased as an opinion implies that a false statement of fact is true. And in deciding this issue, you should consider whether the average reader would conclude from the language of the statement and its context that Carissa was implying a false statement of fact is true. And then they have some sources and authority in this particular instruction that I thought were interesting. Although statements of fact may be actionable as libel, statements of opinion are constitutionally protected. That does not mean that statements of opinion enjoy blanket protection. On the contrary, where an expression of opinion implies a false assertion of fact, the opinion can constitute actionable defamation. The crucial question of whether challenge statements convey the requisite factual imputation is ordinarily a question of law for the court. Thus, Rhetorical hyperbole, vigorous epithets, lusty and imaginative expressions of contempt, and language used in a loose figurative sense have all been accorded constitutional protection. The law does not prevent you from calling somebody a louse, from getting out there and giving your opinion of someone else's character. It prevents you from lying about facts. And if it's a public figure, it prevents you from knowingly, with malice, lying about those facts. And so when you bring this claim, you have to look at these sentences and say, okay, are these opinions or are these facts? A man who spent so much time preying on young women with no age check, I suppose it could be disproven if there were age checks and things along those lines, but the word praying, while negative, is going to have trouble actually crossing the hurdle of a libel claim because it's effectively in the eye of the beholder. If you saw someone that was just being skeezy at the bar and going around to people and trying to get them to go up to their hotel room, that could be considered praying by you. Uh, and that's your opinion. And some other people might read it differently, but it probably doesn't rise to the level of libel. Getting them drunk, 
Let's say you were a teetotaler and you never even drank and you never ordered anybody any drinks. Maybe you've got some kind of claim there. That's something that could objectively be proven true or false. But if you're otherwise drinking with someone, getting them drunk is again going to probably be in the eye of the beholder. Taking them to hotel rooms, probably the same. You might have a case if you don't ever bring anybody to a hotel room, but you know just from what's admitted by Chris in this particular lawsuit that he did, in fact, walk someone up to their hotel room. So we get into an area where we've got a lot of opinion-like language, and that's going to be a problem for winning a case on a defamation basis, especially in California, where you might know they deal with public figures and celebrities and are against defamation claims a lot. You then get... Chris's claims that he was damaged, and I think he would easily win this. If he got past the liability hurdle, he makes a good case that he got fired from a lot of places based on these accusations. Chris Avalone is no longer associated with the Gato Studio or the Waylanders Project. So as a result, Avalone has suffered reputational harm in an amount to be proved at trial. As a result, Avalone has lost employment and continues to lose employment in an amount to be proved at trial. Avalone has also suffered shame, mortification, and hurt feelings as a result of Barrow's libels. And you saw this particular line brought up on Twitter and social media as particularly funny uh, in a lawsuit. I will tell you, I understand reading it and saying, oh, he's got hurt feelings, he's suing over feelings. And yet that's effectively what the state of California requires, right? When you go and you look at all of these things and you see what are general damages for a claim under this section, it means damages for what? Loss of reputation, shame, mortification, and hurt feelings. When you're writing a lawsuit and you're doing it the right way, you take what are the standards in the statute, what otherwise might be the standards and precedent made available to you, and you write the same words. You want the court and the judge to be able to say, yep, They're talking about general damages under the libel section. I know exactly what they mean. And so you see this shame, mortification, hurt feelings exactly matching what we saw in the California code. That's not at all unusual. And it really doesn't mean much of anything vis-a-vis the lawsuit. We then get the next statement, count two. Here's another man to add to the gaming industry predator garbage pile. And again, you've got this predation concept, preying, predator, that pops up in a number of places. And I'm not here to tell you that that isn't harmful in modern society in 2021. What I am here to tell you is that that might not rise to the level of libel, of defamation, because of the inherent opinion component of a phrase like that. We talk about the other side of the coin a lot in virtual reality, right? We talk about advertising and what I call puffery, what the courts have called puffery for a long time, in which you can't really be brought up on a false advertising claim for what is, we're the best darn hamburger in the state, and that kind of thing. It's pretty much similar on the opposite side of the coin, where if you were saying something like, that person is a louse or predator or mean, or he's a meanie, that that's an opinion that you have, and someone could disagree with it. Someone could come out and say, Chris is not a predator. He doesn't do those kinds of things. And the court is in a very poor ability, has a very poor methodology to determine whether or not you are lying about your own subjective mental state about what this person is as a character. So before you get to actual accusations of things being done, this man groped me, for instance, you aren't really necessarily in the fact-based defamation kind of world. Now, maybe the law will change on this. Maybe there'll be a better reflection of what Twitter and social media does. And like, this really does have negative ramifications for somebody just going out there with this language. But as far as the law is concerned right now, because of that First Amendment protection, because of the way the United States is organized, I look at this and say, "Mm, that's a tough claim to bring on a libel action, certainly. We then get to the third cause of action and maybe we get some stronger stuff. He got me blackout drunk uh, is something that could potentially be uh, objected to 
uh, and uh, something that could potentially be proven or disproven, uh, and you might have some falsity there. The only reason I was able to refuse him in my blackout stupor was because I was on my period. The only reason, uh, and again, apologies for the content here, but it's important to kind of going over the differences between facts and opinions. That's something that could potentially be proven, especially over the time period at issue. And because that's part and parcel to the claim that he would have taken advantage of me in an illegal way had that not been the case, you maybe could get somewhere with that kind of quantification. But again, we're still a couple steps removed from he did X and I can show that that was false. Other nights I watched him do the same to other girls. Maybe, maybe not. It's the kind of thing that maybe you could disprove. Uh, and especially if it's done with specific falsity. Uh, his behavior didn't stop though. If anything, it got worse. It took years for his employer to finally fire him. I don't see anything there that probably rises to the level of uh, libel. His behavior didn't stop is unclear as to what's being referred to. If anything, it got worse. Again, unclear. It took years for his employer to finally fire him. I think the claim here that uh, Chris winds up making is that uh, Obsidian didn't fire him and that that was a different issue. Uh, but then you get to the bottom and we get a few things that are potentially more actionable. He was clearly no stranger to doing this when I met him is an opinion, uh, but it is at least speaking to the claims that are made against him. And then you get Chris Avalone is an abusive, abrasive, conniving sexual predator. Abusive is perhaps something that you could bring as quantifiable what abuse is, but it's a tricky one and it's very difficult. Abrasive, you're never going to win. That's not liable. A lot of people can think somebody is abrasive or think somebody is funny and they could say exactly the same things. That's not something that is defamation. Conniving sexual predator winds up back into this land of, hey, California courts, do you think calling someone a predator, specifically a sexual predator here, is an opinion or is it something more? And if sexual predator doesn't imply in the public's mind necessarily illegal action, that this could just be a skeezy person at a bar, then maybe you're a little bit more okay. If it does imply to a reasonable listener that what we're talking about is actual legal action, that this man is a criminal, then we start to get into more obvious libel per se concepts. So you look back in the past, libel per se was very often about crimes. You accuse somebody of being a criminal, especially if it's related to their industry specifically. If you say Chris stole all of his writing for Knights of the Old Republic, well then by God, that's probably libel per se. And you can bring that action when he can show that that didn't happen, hopefully. Uh, but in here, abusive, abrasive, predator, predation, we get a little bit more removed from what you can actually prove. Now, I tend to think, knowing Twitter as I do and social media, that we're, we're probably a little bit over the line here. But because of this lawsuit and you've brought all these things that I don't really think are over the line, you could easily get lost in the wash with something like this. And I don't think it's a very strong lawsuit as of right now. You've also seen me highlight as I scroll down here, he continues to use the reasonable care standard. That is the private figure standard. And he doesn't really make a statement in this lawsuit that he is a private figure or try to discount what will undoubtedly be the counter filing, which is this is a public figure. You need to prove actual malice. He was on IGN because he was so famous. Look at all these Kickstarters, et cetera, et cetera. And you don't even try to get in front of that if you're Chris with this lawsuit. In the fourth cause of action, and I think I might have to apologize from, for some language here, we'll see, either fess up to what you did to countless women and you assaulted and abused my friends. Now, assault is a little bit more of a specific word, right? Assault carries legal connotations. Assault is the name of a crime. So that starts to sound like you committed a criminal act. And to the extent that that is false, you might have something approaching a libel claim here. Abuse not as much. Abuse is a little bit broader. You can abuse someone by telling them you're going to come home from work early and come home late and you didn't call them in the meantime. Abuse is something that's going to be a little bit more in the eye of the beholder. Assault 
has these negative connotations. And I think Chris actually does a pretty good job of establishing that here because he brings up the reporting on this. He says, on June 22nd, 2020, San Francisco-based computer game developer online magazine Gamasutra published a report as a result of Barrow's statements entitled Dying Light 2 writer Chris Avalone accused of sexual assault and harassment. And that looks very much like this person made an accusation of illegal activity on the part of Mr. Avalone. And that starts to look very much like libel per se. So you have a mixed bag here. But because even now, while we're talking about this, you can see that there's an eye of the beholder element, even in using the word assault. That means if you're a public figure, if you're Chris Avalone and they win a case that you're a public figure, it's going to be very, almost impossibly difficult to prove that someone that says this actually believed it was false when they said that because it's tricky to even establish falsity in the concept. So if this person had these experiences with you, thought about them and decided that they were assault, then if you're a public figure, they can probably say that out into the world, even if you think it's false. So it's a very tricky set of circumstances and a very difficult case to win. And you see here, he also follows it up by saying, I lost all these other jobs. We take matters of sexual harassment, another legal claim and disrespect with utmost care and have no tolerance for such behaviors. It applies to both our employees as well as our external consultants. Uh, that is why we are currently looking very closely into the matter. This is why together with Chris, we've decided to end our cooperation. We're still working towards delivering the experience we promised in Dying Light 2. He, he got fired from a bunch of stuff. EA says EA has no plans to work with Chris moving forward. The recent reports have surfaced are very concerning. You get to libel per se count five against Bristol. I've never admitted this on Maine, but he groped me repeatedly. His hand was on my ass. Now those are facts. Those are not opinions. And to the extent they are false, you could potentially bring a libel action against him. But it's a little bit unclear how that's intended to be proved. And unfortunately, as is the case with the sexual assault claims and similar claims themselves, it becomes a very tricky thing to evidence. You also have a, a problem here where they don't actually use Chris's name. Uh, and one of the things that you saw in the jury instructions is someone has to know who they're talking about. Uh, so it really is a matter of understanding what the context is. And you can be your own judge as to whether the lawsuit presents the context properly, but it is the two people that had prior been talking about this, talking once again about these specific circumstances. The reader would reasonably understand the statements to be about Avalone is what the lawyers say here. I think that's probably true, uh, but it's not as tight as I would like to see if you're bringing this case uh, before the court. Then we get the sixth cause of action. He's a sick man. I hope he gets help. But what happens to his or any other predator's career is on them. So you see them using the word predator a lot. And unfortunately, predation isn't something that has a legal context. So it probably winds up in the opinion zone uh, that you can... Uh, predate on someone uh, without necessarily violating any laws and without two different sets of eyeballs necessarily agreeing on what they just saw. If you're at a different table and you're watching someone at the bar, is that a predator? Is it not? Uh, it's a little bit unclear and it's not something that you want the law to get involved in if the law cares about things like First Amendment considerations and the right to freedom of speech. And that's the lawsuit, right? So that's all he brought were these kinds of things. So you have a couple here that I think are stronger than others, the groping, the, the, where the hands were, uh, potentially other things here, uh, like you assaulted me uh, and abused my friends. Uh, that's a little bit more, and you see that directly in the way it was treated in various articles. I think that's a stronger claim than some of these things that are like, you're abusive and abrasive. Uh, that That's not gonna get as far. And the other problem that Chris has here 
And, and another reason why you don't bring libel suits or defamation suits without really, really thinking about it in the United States is that he filed this in California, right? And California is a state uh, that has a lot of celebrities, has a lot of gossip rags, has a lot of journalists in it, has a lot of people, frankly. Uh, and they're used to dealing with things that are untowards and with uh, news items that people, famous people, powerful people, rich people don't like. Uh, and so they have some fairly robust laws about when you can sue and when you can't sue to protect the journalistic process. And we call these uh, slap motions. It says the legislator finds and declares that there has been a disturbing increase in lawsuits brought primarily to chill the valid exercise of the constitutional rights of speech, of freedom of speech. To this end, this section shall be construed broadly, which is a big sentence in a statute. It says, hey, if there's an ambiguity, you read it as if this statute applies. A cause of action against a person arising from any act of that person in furtherance of the person's right of petition or free speech under the United States Constitution or the California Constitution in connection with a public issue shall be subject to a special motion to strike. If you can look at this case and say what Carissa and the other accuser and accusers was saying about Chris was related to a public issue, then they can actually, as part of this lawsuit, motion to have it struck. And as part of that, they can get their attorney's fees paid. They can get all this kind of stuff. And in California, that's designed to protect the freedom of speech, the ability of people to put things on Twitter. And it says, as used in this section, act in furtherance of a person's right of petition of free speech under the United States or California Constitution in connection with a public issue includes any written or oral statement or writing made in a place open to the public or a public forum like a Twitter in connection with an issue of public interest. And like so many things, as we've already talked about as part of this video, that's a little bit vague. But we can see that California has looked at this fairly broadly, as that sentence in the recital suggested it should. California courts look at factors such as whether the subject of the disputed statement was a person or entity in the public eye, whether the statement involved conduct that could affect large numbers of people beyond the direct participants, and whether the statement contributed to debate on a topic of widespread public interest. And certainly, the gaming industry and the status of prominent figures in that industry and how they deal with folks at conventions and elsewhere has been a topic of widespread public interest for a number of years now. So you see references here to places where California has found there to be that public interest. Statements about the character of a public official. Statements about a celebrity or a person voluntarily associating with a celebrity. And if you find yourself, as Chris Avalon, getting into a bucket where the court says you are a public official or even a limited public a figure for purposes of this conversation, you're going to have potential problems with slap actions. And worse than that, in California, if you win a motion to strike on a slap action, California actually puts another provision in that says, not only can you do that, you can sue them for malicious prosecution in a slap back lawsuit. California always loves their titles on their various statutes. So filing in California, which is already kind of protective of the right of people to speak more so than maybe some other jurisdictions has a slap statute, has a slap back lawsuit statute is a very difficult thing to do. So if you want to credit Chris with that, it's a risky proposition for him to sue in California. If you want to consider him an idiot, it's an idiotic decision to sue in California. But either way, it's a very tough mountain to climb. And the last reason why people don't bring defamation suits is if it does go to trial, if you do have a judge opining as to the veracity of these kinds of things, you can get into really bad straits. I've brought up the 2020 article, Johnny Depp loses libel case over son wife beater claim, where the judge says the son had proved what was in the article to be substantially true. Under the British court system, Johnny Depp was found in some important respects to actually be a wife beater. 
And you always run that risk because truth is a defense to a defamation or libel claim. Carissa can come in and bring other receipts and say, here's why I thought those things, judge. And the judge can say, yeah, okay, here's your slap motion. Here's your anti-slap lawsuit. And also, yeah, I think that that's enough to suggest that you had reason to believe that it was substantially true. And then you get put on you the label that a court somewhere found these accusations to be accurate at a much lower standard than they would have needed to have been found accurate in a criminal court or in another action that was based on them prosecuting you. And so it's a very risky proposition. It's why you don't see these things so often. I don't necessarily think that a lot of the things that are brought up here are particularly strong libel claims. Uh, and I don't think that this lawsuit properly addresses trying to get Chris out of the bucket of being a public figure, or more specifically, a limited public figure in the gaming industry. Because if he doesn't get himself out of that bucket, I think it's almost impossible to prove that these statements were made with the standard that is required, with proving by clear and convincing evidence that Carissa et al. knew the statements were false or had serious doubts about the truth of them. That Essentially, you have to prove that he wasn't in the country, that he wouldn't have been called a predator because you weren't even observing him. But if you were observing him and you determined that he was a predacious person, that you determined that he was abusive or abrasive or what have you, there's almost no way to meet this standard. And so you can judge the law. You can judge that this is all okay or not okay. You can look at the federal courts requiring a different standard for people that are effectively famous than people that aren't and say, none of that is good, Rick. I don't like any of that. That isn't fair to someone like Chris. I don't mind that. But you need to understand the legal parameters of how these documents actually work. And the case itself seems to suffer from some inherent weaknesses uh, that if you want to see these cases adjudicated for for veracity, for truthfulness, I think you are unlikely to. I think this is the kind of case that is likely to get kicked out rather quickly, settled very quickly, uh, and, and just gone away with, uh, but otherwise not deliver for Mr. Avalon or probably for the accusers any kind of the, the comfort and finalization of the law that we would like to see at the end of a lawsuit or action like this. This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you enjoy talking about the business and law of video games, technology, pop culture, please consider supporting the channel at Patreon, Streamlabs, buying something from the store, or just subscribing and telling your friends that we're here and doing all the other good stuff that Google likes to let them know that we actually have a channel over here. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.